I want to start by showing you a pasuk that is not on the source sheet. Uh, and that is uh, right here. Um, and it's a pasuk in Yirmiyahu Chaf. And you'll see why I'm, why I'm starting with this pasuk. This pasuk in Yirmiyahu Chaf uh, is the source of the first three words of a very popular prayer that we say on Rosh Hashanah. Uh, we only say it on Rosh Hashanah. And the prayer is Hayom Harat Olam. Uh, Hayom Harat Olam is translated in all the prayer books and the way it's explained and all the drushes. Today is the birthing of the world. Today is the birthday of the world. Um, is that really true? Is Rosh Hashanah based on the Seder and Seder Olam? We understand that it's actually it was Chafhebe Elul. It's the, the birthday of man. However, we understand it. It comes from a Pasuk in Yirmiyahu right here which I will highlight, which means something very different, All right? So now um, I'm gonna start with Ted Vav because I want, to, I want you to get the flavor of what's going on. Cursed is the man who told my father that you have a baby boy, meaning me. At the time he elated him. My father was happy to know that I was born. I'm cursing that man. He should be like Stom and Amor that were destroyed. And there's always screaming going on in that town. Why? That God didn't kill me in the womb. And now here we go. That my mother should have been my grave and her womb should have been permanently pregnant. Harat olam. Olam meaning permanent. That's what it means in Tanakh. So in other words, this phrase, harat olam, is part of a curse. And Yumiyahu is saying, I wish that my mother's womb would have been harat olam, that I never would have come out. I hate the fact that I was born. I hate the misery that I'm seeing. That's Yumiyahu. That's what Yumiyahu is saying here. We take that phrase, harat olam, and turn it inside out. We turn it inside out several ways. Uh, first of all, because we take the rabbinic meaning of olam. In Tanakh, the word olam is only about time. But in rabbinic Hebrew, olam also is about spatial um, description, which is the world. And therefore, for instance, when we have the bracha, Eloheinu melacha olam, it can be translated two different ways, the king forever or the king over everything, the king over the world. But that's how we, how we typically understand it. So they took the meaning of Olam, but they turned it also inside out from a terrible curse to a very festive statement. Why am I showing you that? Because I want to show you another pasuk in Yirmiyahu, which is also very famous. And that is here uh, towards the end of Perak Chaf Gimel. Now, Perak Chaf Gimel in Yirmiyahu, and you'll see what this has to do with Sukkot, Perak Chav Gimel Nirmiyahu is a diatribe against false Nevi'im. And in this uh, particular passage, I'll go right to Pasuk Chavchet. He says, and this is widely quoted in, in Chazal, the famous Midrash about it. He says, If a Navi has a real dream, he should tell it. A dream, then he should tell it. But if he has my word, he should speak the truth. In other words, Naveen could say all sorts of things. They're not necessarily my word. And then he says, what does grain have to do with chaff? 
And so Chazal have a famous statement that proves that all dreams, no matter how true, always have some untrue parts. Lo chashut. And then he says, because what were the false prophets saying? They were all saying everything's going to be fine, everything's going to be smooth. And Yumiyahu, the one true prophet, is saying, no, things are not going to be good. We're in for a reckoning. And so he says, God says, my words are like fire. What does he mean here by fire? Fire, he means something that is harmful and destructive. And like a hammer that breaks apart a rock. My words are going to be harsh. And so don't listen to these guys who are telling you all these soft things. You look at the rest of the parak, you'll see that that's, what he, that that's where he goes with this. Why is that relevant? Because what do Chazal do with that phrase? Chazal do something very different with it. They say, um, says that just like a rock hitting, a hammer hitting a rock and it breaks into all sorts of different parts, and just like fire is made up of all sorts of different colors, etc. Similarly, the words of Hashem can be understood in many, many different ways. That is about as distant from the original meaning of the text as the piece that we had about, um, about Harat Olam. And yet it's used popularly and canon, canonizedly, if you will, um, not only by Chazal, but Darshanim throughout the centuries to present the idea that a particular lesson in Torah has many different pieces to it, many different approaches to it, and one approach does not invalidate another approach because Hashem's words are like light coming through a prism that's refracted and can have multiple lessons, and the lessons sometimes can even be almost opposite lessons, and yet they're all valid reflections of that word. The reason I brought this up as an introduction is, um, is because we have a very sad task. You know, we, we come out of Yom Kippur and we start Yom Kippur trembling and we start Yom Kippur crying. And in the middle of the day, the crying perhaps reaches its apogee for some people during Yizkir, for other people during the Asaru Malchut, but we certainly have that. But by the end of the day, we reach an ecstasy. Ne'il is an ecstasy. And the Tkiag Dola is a, is, a, is a blast of freedom. And to get together the next day, you know, there's a minute to come to for early minion the next day to get up early and, and uh, to start doing mitzvot with also the joy and excitement of coming to Sukkot. And yet, I have to be honest with you, our joy is, is very much, much tempered. Um, it was last Wednesday, uh, last time that I gave shear to this part of the, to this, part of this group it was the second half of the Tzom Gedalia Shir. And, um, you know, people come, but not everybody comes to every Shir. And so one of our regular Shir goers was not here. And uh, normally I, you know, I wait a couple of weeks before I call somebody to see if everything's okay. And that night um, I, uh, I got a text message. Um, it's actually a lot stranger than that. I, I got a phone call as I was learning with my daughter on a walk, I got a phone call and I never interrupt my chavrutot with my kids for anybody. I got a phone call from Judd McGillnick. And so I sent back an automatic message that said, you know, I'm learning right now, I'll call you back. 
Then I got a, a call from somebody else, somebody not related. So I sent back the same message. Then I got a text from this friend saying that Judd McGilnick had suddenly passed away. So there was a certain amount of uh, Rod Serling there. It was a little bit strange getting a call from him. I found out what happened is that one of his kids had taken his phone and found my number and called from there. And um, Judd, who was a regular part of our shiur almost from the beginning, and who always had a, a beautiful smile, who had a real passion for learning. Judd was a, a real polymath. He was an expert in so many different fields and extremely tsanua. I don't know how you say extremely tsanua because it's almost like an oxymoron, but very modest um, and, and self-effacing and yet brilliant. And um, hearing the way his, his kids spoke about him at the Leviah was just really, it, it, was, it, was, it was startling because there was so much about this man I did not know. I knew him first as a parent at a parent-teacher conference. I taught four of his five kids. All four of his sons are my students. But very quickly we became friends and he became part of the Shear. And uh, the very, very sudden loss happened all within an hour or two on Wednesday. Uh, is, is really devastating to us. So I'd like to dedicate this year, and I'll be dedicating this year through the course of the year uh, for the, the 12 months to, uh, to Yitzchak Tzvi, Ben Yoshua Moshe, and may his, his, uh, his memory and may the memory of his beautiful smile and his, um, and his anecdotes and his observations always be a source of blessing uh, for us and for Nahama for the family. Um, and, and so I think of him, when I think about this pasuk, the way that we interpret it, there was always another angle. There was always another way to look at things that he brought in, and he never brought it in ever as anything like a challenge, but just as another thing to think about. It was another piece of the fire. And it was a real beautiful thing about, about Judd that we're, we're all going to miss. Um, but to our, to our question, in... Four days from now, we're going to begin the festival of Sukkot. Three and a half days from now, we're going to begin the festival of Sukkot. What is Sukkot? Like, why is there a festival? And why is that festival now? And why is that festival celebrated by sitting in Sukkot? And why is that festival called Sukkot? All right. And so the Torah tells us a very simple answer. And I think everybody instinctively would give this answer. And if you ask the average person on the street, and again, depends what street you're on, but you ask the average person, let's say on Pico, and I don't know about Olympic, but on Pico, you would ask them, uh, why Sukkot? They would say, it says in the Torah, because Hashem enabled us to sit in Sukkot as we were going through the desert. And I said, what are Sukkot? And if the person was particularly knowledgeable, certain corners of Pico, they would say, oh, it's a machloket, whether or not it's clouds or actual Sukkot. Beautiful. Let's see it, because it's not so simple. All right, the Torah commands us in Parshat Emor, and this is the laning on the first two days. You see it in source two. All right, so you're supposed to live in Sukkot for seven days. All citizens should live in Sukkot. What's the purpose of it? The Torah tells you. So your generation should know. I caused B'nai Yisrael to live in Sukkot as I took them out of Mitzrayim. Now, when did this happen? So in our imagination, I believe that we have the entire desert experience 
as being protected either by the clouds or along with the clouds by giving us the, the wherewithal to be able to build protective huts in the desert. And that's the famous machloket that we have in the Sifra. It's a, quote, a machloket quoted in the Gemara, source three. Meaning there were real booths. He said, it's ananea kavod. And we're all familiar with this machloket. But there, this is a, a problem on several levels, right? First of all, I have one of the questions. Question B is, so why do we celebrate it in the fall? In other words, if it's a commemoration of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, the most natural time to celebrate it would be Pesach. Now Pesach, and have the full experience. Eat your matzah, have your Seder in a sukkah. Slam dunk, it's very simple. And if you want to claim that the weather is more suited for a sukkah when it is, then Pesach, the reality is the weather is about the same in Israel and in here and, and, and in the parts of Chutzlaretz, certainly in Bavel, when everything was developing. But in Israel, certainly the weather is the same. So how would it be Pesach time? Why now? That's one problem. We have the machloket of Eliezer and Bekiva, and we want to know what that machloket's about. But I have a different question that's not on the page. If our imagination is, our picture is, that it's the 40 years of travel during which Hashem protected us, we have a slight chronological problem. This mitzvah given in source two is given in Vayikra. When was Vayikra given? Vayikra was given at the beginning of the second year of the Exodus. Meaning, we left Mitzrayim, we made our way to Har Sinai, we camped at Har Sinai, we messed up at Har Sinai, we had a camp longer at Har Sinai, and then we spent the winter building a Mishkan. On the first day of Nisan, the Hainu, um, two weeks shy of our anniversary of leaving Egypt, our first anniversary, we dedicated the Mishkan. And on that day, Hashem called Moshe, Vayikrael Moshe, Vayidaber Adonai Lami, Omoe and they're safe from Vayikra, which means that this mitzvah was given at the beginning. So what does Hashem mean? I have caused B'nai Yisrael. That means it's got to refer to something between leaving Egypt and now. But the problem is that for the last nine months or 10 months, we've been sitting at Har Sinai. Now, it seems like we were camped at Har Sinai. It says we camped, which assumes tents. So where are these Sukkot? So it's difficult to have this be about the later 38 years as we travel through the desert and we have Sukkot to protect us, All right? So just putting the questions out there. We're going to play sort of a Bravanel style today, which is to put the questions out first. Now, Sukkot is not first mentioned in Vayikra. It's actually first mentioned earlier in what we commonly refer to as Sefer Habrit, which is in Parshat Mishpatim, that happens right at Matan Torah. And how is it introduced? Source 4. V'chag ha-katsir b'kurei masach ha-shetizra ba-sadeh, and v'chag ha-asif b'tzei ta-shana b'ozpachat masach ha-minah So we have a festival at the beginning of the harvest, which is the harvest of wheat, which we call Shavuot, and another one, which is the harvest festival at the end when we collect everything. And that's what we call Sukkot, which means, by the way, we now have the Torah telling us two different angles of Sukkot. One is a historic commemoration of 
of Hashkacha, of HaKadosh Baruch, who's taking care of us as we left Egypt. And again, we don't know the span of that. And the second is as an agricultural festival, which we celebrate paired with Shavuot, which are both about the harvest, the beginning of the harvest and the end of the harvest, Chag HaSif. Okay, but we still have this problem of what are these Sukkot. So, so far we have two opinions about what the Sukkot really are. We now understand why we're supposed to celebrate it in the fall because it's essentially a harvest festival. And so we've got those two pieces kind of put together, but what is it we're supposed to be experiencing? If it's just a harvest festival, Vakasha, which by the way, of course, is hardly meaningful to us uh, who live both of in a global economy when things are available all year and very few people in this year are actually farmers. So there's an interesting third possibility that's raised by Chazal. In other words, we look at it, we see Rebbe Yezra, Bekiva is very famous, Rashi quotes it, as far as we're concerned, that's what's there, but there's actually a lot more there. So in the description of the Exodus, because remember, we'd like this to be early in the Exodus, if possible. In the description of the Yitziat Mitzrayim, in the chapter that talks about Achodesh Azalachem, Mitzvah Korban Pesach, um, the uh, the question of the child who was Mavo Dazot Lachem, and uh, and their actual travels, it says Vayisuvne Yisrael Meiram Seis Sukota. Bnei Yisrael traveled, meaning they gathered on the fifteenth in the morning in Ramses, and they went from there. And the first place they went to was called Sukot. It's the name of a place, Sukot. And there's the count of the people, 600,000 um, men, uh, infantry, as it were. Now, notice that Sukkot, as we're familiar with from other locations, and I'll right away bring your attention to, to another location, Sukkot is a, is a Semitic word, unlike Ramses, which is an Egyptian word. Ramses, by the way, means what? It means son of Ra. Ra Meses. Meses means child or son, like Moses. And Ra is the name of the sun god. So Ra Meses, the son of the god. Like in Hebrew, you'd say Benayahu. Right? So Ramses, that's an Egyptian name, a glot Egyptian name. Sukkot, on the other hand, is a glot Semitic name. There is no question that it is a Semitic name, Semitic cognates. It's not Egyptian at all. Remember, Egyptian is not a Semitic language. So why is there a town right outside of Egypt called Sukkot? And the answer seems to be that there was, remember, Egypt was a cosmopolitan area at the time. And because of the famine that had taken place several hundred years earlier, there was an influx of people from all over the place. And many of them stayed. Some of them became enslaved, including, but not exclusively, us. And some for a while actually had powerful positions, like we did at some point. And evidently, at some particular point, there was a Semitic Canaanite settlement, if you will, called Sukkot outside of Egypt. And that's the first place we come to. And there's something very powerful and symbolic about that, that right away God is taking us out of the culture of Egypt. God is removing us from Ramses and all the idolatry of Egypt. And right away, the first place he's putting us is a place called Sukkot. Right away, we're on our way home. Okay. And the reason I bring that up is because I didn't make it up. It's in the Mechilta. Take a look. In the Mechilta, which is the Midrash Halachan Shemot, on this pasuk, it says, Sukkot mamashayu. 
meaning this place called Sukkot was not just called Sukkot. It was a place that had booths. Now, by the way, what kind of booths? I'll tell you in a second what I think this is talking about. Now, the Midrash here is quoting a pasuk in Breshit about Yaakov. Yaakov travels from Penuel, where he's had the midnight wrestling match, to Sukkot. He's limping and he comes to Sukkot. Why is it called Sukkot? Because he built Sukkot there. Where is Sukkot? Sukkot is in Jordan. We know exactly where it is. It is a place called Der Tel Der Allah, which is uh, if you if it's at the fork of the Abok. So if you go up Road 90 today and stop about midway up to Beit Shan and stand on the side of the road, you can see Sukkot. That's where it is. So what does that have to do with this? This is in Egypt. The answer is they're saying that anytime you find a town called Sukkot, it's because there was Sukkot built there. It's named after those huts. And indeed, in the case of Yaakov, it says he built Sukkot. The very Rebeliezer. So remember Rebeliezer who said Sukkot Mamash, now his, his notion is expanded. It doesn't just mean physical Sukkot, it means in the town of Sukkot, which solves our problem. Because that happened when we left. So that means that when at Har Sinai, Hashem says, celebrate Sukkot because I caused you to dwell in Sukkot, it's not referring to protective huts. It's referring to our first station after leaving Egypt. It's commemorating the Exodus. They said, no, Sukkot is just the name of a place. That's part of our travels. Sukkot's a place. So now we see all three opinions. Opinion one, Sukkot means booths. Sukkot, opinion two, Sukkot is the name of a city here. And opinion three, we're familiar with that. Okay. Now, let's put a finer touch on this. What are we celebrating? We're celebrating that Hashem caused us to dwell in Sukkot. What's so good about dwelling in Sukkot? What's wrong with tents? What's so good about Sukkot? So if Sukkot are on Anea Kavod, well, there's a whole miraculous experience we're supposed to recreate. Look at this from Midrash Sechato, which is an 11th century Italian Midrash. Rebeliezer de Amar Sukkot Mamash, right? Rebeliezer says real Sukkot. Asulam b'makom chanayatam l'sof. And how far is this? This is 520 mil, which means... This is now evidently in Har Sinai. How does Rabbi Eliezer hear, or me, how does the Midrash interpret Rabbi Eliezer? He says, you know what Sukkot are? Sukkot are royal residences. Royal residences when you're on the run, as opposed to, here we go, below Kederach Avadim, as opposed to slaves who are running away. So now, by the way, we consistently look at a sukkah. When we come into a sukkah for its fragility, for our belief, the Zohar refers to the schach as sila de mehemnuta. I have that on the top of the page. The shade of faith. We go outside and we're ex exposed to the elements, but we trust that Hashem is going to protect us. Faith. This Midrash has the opposite. It says, you know what? This is a royal place. Unlike slaves who are running away and, and hiding, 
These are people who have left and are very comfortable letting everybody know where they are because they're untouchable. And so Kivasukoto Shavti is suddenly a whole different fabric. What is Hashem saying? When I brought you out of Egypt, you left Biyad Ramah. You left with heads held high. You didn't leave like thieves stealing in the night. After all, when did Paro come to Moshe and say, leave in the middle of the night? And what did Moshe say to him? We're going to leave when we're good and ready, which is in the morning. Beresh Galeh, with our heads held high and our hands held high, marching out proudly. And that's a powerful statement about freedom. We're not sneaking away, going AWOL. We're walking out. And he said, that's a big part of what the Sukkot is. And take a look here at this description of it in Beshalach. This pasuk connects their leaving Sukkot, and for the first time ever we hear about a cloud that protects them. The pillar of cloud during the day, the pillar of fire during the night. So notice it's when they leave the town of Sukkot that you first get the clouds. You now understand where Rabbi Akiva is coming from. Rabbi Akiva says, after all, the clouds that protected us show up after we leave the town of Sukkot. Which means that the, when Hashem says, I caused you to dwell in Sukkot, it's like I brought you to the town of Sukkot and then I kept the Sukkot moving with you. That's the clouds. Just like the Ramban's approach to the Mishkan as being a movable Har Sinai. Um, this is, uh, again, the, 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 the Pasuk with Yaakov. But I want to show you this Rashbam. This Rashbam is gorgeous. Rashbam says the following. And again, we've got now at least four different angles on the Sukkah both from what it's referring to and also what it's supposed to feel like. Look at the Rashbam, source 10. You should not be surprised for half a second. It's the Rashbam. And he says, the simple read is it's referring to a booth. Remember I told you that, that I have an idea what we're talking about. I really did not understand what a sukkah was until 1982. And I'm a little older than that. Now, of course, I knew what it was. I knew the halachot. I didn't really understand it. In 1982, Pesach time, I went to visit Israel. I was living in New York at the time. And I went to visit a friend of mine who was living in Gush Katif. And um, just before that, there had been an attack on somebody who had gone into Aza, into the Shuk, to buy food and had been knifed. And so they declared uh, the city of Aza off limits for Jews, and they built a bypass road. So I got down, I picked up my friend, and we took the bypass road. As we took the bypass road, I saw extremely pasul Sukkot on the side of the road. Very tall uh, poles put up with some fat stuff way on top. It was way more, it, I don't know if it was 20 amot high, but it wasn't, there was no walls. It was totally pasul. And I turned to my friend who lived there and I said, what is it? He says, very simple. The Arabs go out in the morning to harvest. They leave at 4.30 in the morning. They come out here. They work until it gets too hot. Then they crawl under this little bit of shade, have some lunch, take a rest, and get up in the afternoon when the sun has cooled a little bit. And then they continue working till the end of the day. And I understand what Sukkot are. They're simply farmer's huts, harvester's huts. 
Makes a lot of sense. So now the Rashbam, going back to the Rashbam, he says, that's Pshat. Pshat is Sukamamash. Vizeta Moshel Davar. He now explains the Pasuk. Make a festival of Sukkot when you gather in from your granary and from your winery. Watch what he says, it's gorgeous. He says, when you gather the bounty of the land and your, your houses are filled with all sorts of good things, grain and wine and oil, this is the point you have to remember. And by the way, now he explains why this festival has to be in the fall. You were settled in Sukkot the whole time without any sort of land, with any sort of settlement. Meaning, Sukkot, the Rashbam, is the opposite of the Midrash we just saw. Sukkot are a sign of poverty. Sukkot are a sign of being a vagabond. Remember that you were vagabonds in the desert and you had nothing. You had no land. You had nothing farmable, anything. And now that you're in the land, give thanks to the one who's given you this land. Don't make the mistake. Moshe repeats this lesson throughout the first part of Devarim. Don't make the mistake of thinking, I earned this. I got it. It's my own power. And he says, this is what happens in Parshat Ekev when the man is associated with coming to Israel. Watch this. Remember the, the way that Hashem took you through? He afflicted you. It was difficult. He fed you the man. That's the problem. You suffered terribly in the desert, and I took care of you. You had nothing. Now I bring you to the land where you've got everything, and it's easy for you to forget what it was like, and therefore and to forget Hashem, and therefore do all of this to remember He says, you know why you have to go live in the Sukkot during harvest season? Because that's when you run the biggest risk of thinking, I did it, and living in your mansion. And therefore you have to go out to the Sukkot and re-experience what it was like to have nothing. And remember that it's Hashem who gives you all of this. This, this Rashbam is is as far as you have a phrase, Fatayim Yishak. In, in Kentucky, they say finger looking good. It's a beautiful, beautiful word. That's why we leave our houses that are filled with all the great stuff and go out during the harvest season and live in the Sukkot. That remember, we had nothing in the desert. We didn't have houses to live in. Says, that's why God made this holiday to be at the harvest season. Now, by the way, you'll notice that we've already gone in three different directions. Direction one, Sukkot is about Hashem bringing us to the first place outside of Egypt, away from Egyptian culture. And symbolize that by living in a sukkah because they had sukkot in that town. Secondly, 
that Hashem protected us through the desert. That's the, the Bavusta piece. Third of all, though, that Hashem had us leave not like vagabonds and like runaways, but rather like kings living in Sukkot, royalty. And now the fourth, which is very different, which is to have us go live in penury, to go live like homeless people for a week, to remember so we don't get haughty about all the good stuff that we have harvested during this harvest season. We turn to the Ramban. And by the way, the surprises are not over. We turn to the Ramban. The Ramban in his commentary right here. Quotes Rashi on a Kavod, Lashon Rashi. He says, based on Pshat, I think that the Sukkot referenced here are the clouds of protection. Generations must know what Hashem did for us. He had us dwell in his ananim like a sukkah. Protection from the elements. The opposite of the Rashbam, the opposite of the Midrash, that says that it is to be open and visible like a king. Because the text already told us that we have the clouds protecting us day and night. The text just said, I have you live in Sukkot, as if we already know what that means. In other words, he says, the clouds are the Sukkah. Now watch how the Ramban explains the timing. The Rashbam says the reason for the timing is because it's at the time of all this wealth that we have to remember we had nothing. Watch how the Ramban says it. Hashem commanded us at the beginning of the warm season, the Hainu, spring, the time that we came out to remember Yitziat Mitzrayim. And then he commanded that at the beginning of the winter season, the rainy season, we also remember it, right? So that it should be at two poles of the year. So that at each major season shift, we have an affirmative, powerful act of remembering Yitzhak Mitzrayim. The Alda Tomer Sukkot Mamasha Sulayim, according to Rabbi Elezer, who says it was actual Sukkot, he says, when did Israel start building them? He said, they started building them at the beginning of the winter. Because of the cold. His, his picture is that Israel slept outdoors during the summer in the desert. But when it came to being in the winter season, they built Sukkot to protect them. Again, the opposite of the Rashbam, who says it's Dafka unprotected. Um, that's why God commanded at this time. But they didn't have any settlement, anything for 40 years. Okay. I told you, we have yet another surprise. Uh, there's a little bit of a story behind this. So I'll tell the story. Um, you've all heard, I'm sure, of Hasidut Ashkenaz or Hasidei Ashkenaz. Hasidut Ashkenaz is a, was a very popular movement in 
Germany, parts of France, really during the 12th, 13th century. Uh, the reason for it was clearly associated with the Crusades, because often ascetic movements of sorts happen in response to persecution. And it was a movement that strains of which still exist today of, um, of ex excessive pietism um, in all sorts of ways, including Tvilat um, Kerach, uh, you know, going out in the, in the winter, cutting a hole in the ice and going in, dipping um, a certain amount of times, all sorts of other practices of that sort. The most famous personality associated with that movement was Rabbi Yehuda HaChassid of Regensburg. And he's most famous for his book, Sefer HaChassidim. And it's a pietistic book with a lot of practices which are beyond halakha. He never wrote a comprehensive commentary on Chumash, but he did give shiurim every Shabbat at Sudash Lishit on Chumash. And his son wrote notes and kept the notes. And the notes were quoted by a whole bunch of different Rishonim uh, over the course of the years, but was never actually printed. Uh, a particular uh, Yitzhak Lange of Switzerland uh, got access to a number of the manuscripts of this commentary and in 1975, after doing lots of research on it, published the commentary under the title Perush Rabbi Yura Hasid Ala Torah. And it immediately raised all sorts of red flags because it had all sorts of things in it. We've studied a couple of them together in the shiur before. Uh, which were, shall we say, highly controversial. And they basically had to do with um, passages in the Torah that, uh, according to his commentary, were added in later. And not just Yoshua, but much later. And that became part of the problem. Another part of the problem was his take on Shirat Be'er. We'll leave that for a different time. But his commentary is full of all sorts of really cool, insightful ideas. And again, quoted, you'll find it in the Dad Zakanian Baleatosfod, you'll find it in Seferatzioni, all sorts of other Rishonim who quote him favorably. And so here's a comment that he has on Sukkot. Watch this. Source 12. This is the son writing. I remember that our father explained. My father explained, Kiva Sukkot means Bishnat Arbaim Namar Pasuk Zeh. He says something re re revolutionary. He says, This Pasuk was actually given to Moshe in the 40th year. Now, we'll have to step back and see how non revolutionary that statement is. Because remember, when did Moshe write the Torah? He only wrote the Torah at the end, which is why there's so many things that show up, let's say, in Shemot, but that the end of the story is in Shemot, even though it didn't happen till the end, like how long they ate the month. And that the man was put up in front of the in front of the edut, in front of the Mishkan, when the Mishkan didn't exist yet. So he says this pasuk was also added in in the 40th year. Why? Moab. When Bnei Israel camped in Arvot Moab. When did they camp in Arvot Moab? They were living in Sukkot. And they were conquering cities. What's this? This is the war against Sichon and Og, the war for the East Bank. And Hashem gave the command, and the, the command for Sukkah was given in the, in, originally in the desert. But Moshe wrote the reason for it later on when it became clear to us that we had been camping when? When we were going to war. 
This is yet a different take. Why did Hashem command us to live in Sukkot? As army barracks. Set up Sukkot because the army is going to live in Sukkot when they go out to war. He said, don't get bothered by the fact that it says, I caused B'nai Israel to live in Sukkot. As I took them out of Mitzrayim, the 40th year is also called as I took them out of Mitzrayim. Because as you well know, Yetziat Mitzrayim, from the Torah's perspective, spans from Makat Bechorot until we enter the land and cross the Ardain. All of that's called Yetziat Mitzrayim in all sorts of different ways. Amalek attacked us, but Derech Metzedchem Mitzrayim. And that's well after we're outside of Egypt. And Sukkot is also during that period. In Yoshua, it says that, that uh, Moshe and Bnei Israel attack, uh, uh, hurt Sichon and Og on their way out of Mitzrayim. And that's in the 40th year. So Rabbi Yudah Hasid comes up with a whole different take on Sukkot. You know what Sukkot are? Sukkot are military barracks. Sukkot are to commemorate that the Jewish soldiers lived in Sukkot when they went to war against Sihon and Og on the East Bank and conquered it. It's phenomenal, it's phenomenal. Now, I wanna bring you, bring that around to, to one last comment here, which is the other piece of Sukkot. Sukkot is about Sukkah and Arba Minim. And both sets of mitzvot, the Arba Minim and Sukkah, meaning Sukkah with all of its branches, sorry for the pun, and the Arba meaning with all of its components are presented together in Parshat Amor. It's the only place that the, either of those mitzvot appears in Parshat Amor. One of the practices that we have with the Lulav, which is a minhag nevi'im evidently, is to take the Lulav and to walk around in a circle every day. Every day except the last day. And the last day we walk around seven times. What's that about? Talmud Yerushalmi says the following in source 13. This is the Mishnah and Sukkah that describes going around seven times. How do we conquer Yericho? The first day we went out, walked around the city once. Second day once. Third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day once. Seventh day, seven times. And then the city fell. Which means from the perspective of this comment of the Ushalmi, the practice of Oshanot is a military exercise. It's recreating the conquest of Eretz Israel. Just like Rabbi Rachasid says, living in the Sukkot is, re is, is re-experiencing the conquest of Eretz Israel. And now the time of year comes out beautifully. Pesach is leaving Egypt and Sukkot is entering the land. Yes, we entered the land Pesach time. But the idea is to have the two poles of the year represent the two poles of the experience, the leaving and the arriving. The leaving as slaves who have now been freed and the arriving as a new generation coming in as valorous soldiers. I want to end this piece and then there's a, a coda with this Midrash Tanchum and Parshat Amor on the Pasuk about the, about the Arba meaning. It's a phenomenal thing because we definitely are accustomed to thinking about the Arba Minim and Sukkah as being related to the harvest, all good. And it's not to negate that. I'll comment on that at the end. We're also accustomed to the beautiful Midrashim about the four 
minim, each representing one of the four climes of Eretz Yisrael. The four minim representing the four different kinds of Jews, right? The etrog, yeshbotam, v'yeshborech, famous midrashim, beautiful, and bring them all together. Here's a different take on the lulav. You ready? And think about what a lulav looks like. Source 14. In those days, all the trees will sing. What's that? What's that? It's talking about the Jews against the rest of the world. Against the rest of the world. God judges everybody in Yom Kippur. It just happened yesterday. But the image here is a futuristic picture of something that happens on a regular basis. And the deen of Yom Kippur here is presented not as you against yourself. Have you done shuva? Have you corrected or not? But rather, it's Am Yisrael against the rest of the world. We don't know who wins. What's it like? Two people go and they have a case against each other and they're heard before the king. They don't know who won. The king is the only one who knows who won. The king judged them, but nobody knew the outcome. One guy walks out with a lance raised high. Everybody knows he won. So two guys go into judgment. One guy walks out with his head held high and a lance, a weapon held high. He's the guy who won. We go to Din Biyoma Kippurim. As if every year there's a struggle, who's going to be on top? The world doesn't know who won. Take your lulavim in your hands. Hold your lulav high like a lance. It's a weapon. And you'll see that you, everybody will see that you won. That's, that's what it means. In those days, the, the trees will rejoice. Why? God is judging the world. He's going to judge Am Yisrael favorably. And all the trees will feel happy that they're held high by the Jews. We wait another four days. So for four days, walk around with this lulav raised high. Right? And that's why after four days of celebrating, in that way, we then come and actually formally take it as lulav. The reason I brought this midrash is because I want to show you that in Chazal, there is a military motif in Sukkot, which to many of us is new. The notion that Sukkot represents a victory of Am Yisrael, a victory of Am Yisrael over Umot Olam, it's echoed in the very famous Midrash that's, that's at the beginning of the of uh, Zarah and the Bavli, that in the future all the nations are going to say, hey, we didn't get a chance. Hashem says, I have a simple mitzvah, it's Sukkah, and they build a Sukkah, and then Hashem makes it hot, and they kick the Sukkah down, and that justifies the fact that they don't get rewarded like we get rewarded. There's a whole lot of connection between Sukkot and here with the Arbaminim and this military confrontation against the nations. Now, bottom line, you come out of this year and somebody says, what was this year about? It says about Sukkot. What was it about? Why is Sukkot? What's the answer? I don't know. It could be this, it could be that, it could be the other. What do you do with that? 
So I want to take it somewhere very, very different to end this year. Megillat Esther. Esther does something that confounds us. Esther's supposed to get the king to kill Haman, and instead she invites him to a party. So the Gemara asks the question, source 15, Marata Esther Haman. Why did Esther invite Haman? So we have one idea, she laid a trap for him. And the other one is that she learned something from, say, from Mishlei, that you keep your enemies closer. And then the other one is to keep him in her inner sight so he shouldn't start a rebellion. The other is to keep her, her identity as a Jewess still secret. Why would a Jewess invite uh, uh, Haman, right? So that the Jews shouldn't be too comfortable and think we've got a salvation here. If they see the queens inviting Haman, we're afraid that they're in cahoots, right? That she should always have them available to us, right? That Hashem should see us, see that Haman is in the palace with Esther and he should have compassion and save Am Yisrael, right? Um, the other is I'm going to make, I'm going to flirt with him so that I'll get killed, but he'll, he'll be killed too. You know, it's nearly what happens, right? And also explanations. Finally, Rabbi Gamliel says, We need the fellow from Modi'in, Rabbi Eliezer, who says that she created jealousy. Right? Rabbi says, pride goeth before a fall. All of these things are true. Good. We'll look at the last line. It's, it's phenomenal. Now, remember, Eliyahu has access to God. God is the one who communicated Megillah Esther. God knows what's in everybody's mind. We said it over and over and over yesterday. And God certainly knows what Esther had in mind when she decided as a strategy to invite Haman to the party. So he asks Eliyahu, we got 10 opinions here about why Esther did what she did. And they're not close. Some of them are far from each other. What was the truth? Amarlai, what is the answer? They're all right. They're all correct. Which is it? The answer, this is how Torah works. We have a confusing piece. Esther's inviting Haman is a confusing piece. There's a lot of different theories as to why she did it. All of these theories are valuable lessons. And if they're valuable lessons, they're part of the truth. And so Eliyahu says in Hashem's name, just like the famous Machloket, Rabbi Abiyatan, Rabbi Yonatan, about the Pilegesh Pigiva, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu says they're both right. Because the valuable lessons we get from the text, which is what Midrash is all about, are not mutually exclusive, they're mutually beneficial. They enhance our picture. So we come back and ask, what's the sukkah about? Well, the answer is it's about a lot of things. And all of them are valid and all of them are valuable. It's about pride and sitting there like a king in a royal place, not being afraid of the Egyptians. It's about going out and humbling ourselves, very different. But it's also about that. It's about going to war on behalf of Am Yisrael and feeling what it's like re-experiencing the battle of the desert. It's about experiencing God's protection in a natural way or in a supernatural way. Now, do we experience God's protection in a natural way? You're darn too. 
Do we experience God's protection in a supernatural way? Absolutely. Do we sometimes have to go and stand up proudly against the rest of the world for who we are? Yes, we do. Are we sometimes feeling low and need a jolt to remind ourselves that we're royalty? We do. Do we sometimes or maybe often get too filled with ourselves and need to be knocked down? We absolutely do. The sukkah serves each one of these functions. Maybe it serves function A for you and function B for me. I got news. We can both be sitting in the same sukkah and experience different things, and they're both valid. I can look up at the schach and picture and feel what it's like to be a proud Jewish soldier fighting for Am Yisrael. And you can look up at the same schach and feel the humility of saying, I got next to nothing. I got a little thatched hut. And we can invite somebody in who takes a look at it and says, this is royalty. So Sukkot has as many angles as it as it does, as the sides of the octagonal sukkah in the in the in the sugyan in uh, in the first parak. The the mitzvot of sukkah because it's sukkah and also arba minim, take us in lots of different directions. The many midrashim we read about the lulav, and the arba minim and all the different things that symbolize are not mutually exclusive. They enhance each other and they give us opportunities to grab onto the lesson we need to hear that particular year or even that particular day of Sukkot. And this is Darkash Torah. This is the function of Midrash. Not to cut down an approach in favor of another, but to enhance an approach by adding yet another. This is something that um, we definitely had the schut to be able to enjoy from our very dear friend, uh, Judd, for so many years, added perspectives and, and another way of looking at things, never, never to the detriment or to the elimination or to the exclusion of what was taught or what somebody else said, but always as a way of enhancing it. And so, um, although we will continue to, to keep his name on the page and to learn in his memory, I, I really did want to dedicate this Sheer today to, to his memory and uh, to know that we have an opportunity during Sukkot, maybe sitting in a big sukkah at two different tables far away from each other, but maybe we'll have a chance to sit together a little bit and, uh, and really to be able to share some Divrei Torah and allow our Divrei Torah to enhance each other's words of Torah, to build that big building of Torah. And Emir Tzashem, very, very soon, we should all be able to meet in person um, and I think uh, Dovi's offering his house so we can all come to Beit Shemesh and, uh, and we'll all be together. And Amir uh, Tzashem, um, we will all have a Chag uh, Sameach and, um, and uh, really give, have the opportunity to experience the full gamut of, of what Sukkot is there for.